0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Sag Yes, sir. I don't know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot I could have before been. I was I have, I, have I have a
1: plan. I like
0: Wall this is shit. off, bro! Well. It, it is your
1: Welcome to the Atlantic Scream Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week we are back with the 1991 classic by Jonathan Demme, The Silence of the Lambs. This is one I've been meaning to get to for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you too. Uh, I don't know. Was I the one that suggested this?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) it's a film I was very hesitant about looking at because I was like, uh, I, I watched this the first time when I was a teenager and you know i was like in my head at the time i was like it's a perfect film do you really want to keep watching perfect films in your head and take away some of that oh, luster and allure you know thankfully uh you know it 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 turned out it's still a perfect film so <laughs> it was it was <laughs> it worth risking
1: funny. oh i absolutely agree man it is it is fucking perfect i i don't even remember the first time i saw this one man uh let's see. It came out in ninety one. I was aware of it at the time. I was eleven years old. I know my parents had seen it. Uh yeah. they had good things to say about it. Uh Jody Foster was huge at that time as well. This made yeah. Anthony Hopkins a star. But yeah, so I mean, these were all familiar faces for me growing up. You know, Jody mm. Foster is, is is a household name, so is Anthony Hopkins. But I don't remember the first time I saw it. I must have been at least fifteen or sixteen years old, maybe five years after its release, because eleven was too young for me to watch it, that's for sure. But I I don't remember how many times I've seen this. It's got to be at least 10 or 15 times now. And I I every time I sit down to watch it, I can't stop it. No, it just yeah, exactly. Plays. It, it is was, one of those oh.
2: films that kind of lures you in for the moment <laughs> like no matter yeah. where you are.
1: Uh no, so I had I've owned this on video cassette I've owned uh, – I have the first Criterion DVD version of it, which is bare mm. bones with just a trailer. Uh And it's <laughs> in letterboxed and all that. It's a collector's item. I had item. a
2: Rugrats DVD that fucking had more, uh, more features than that Criterion release.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's at the beginnings. What is this? Criterion number 12 or something like that? Right. I'd have to check and see. But yeah, somewhere along those lines, it's like 12, 13, 14. I don't remember exactly what the spine is, but my first version was a video cassette. I remember when DVDs came out, I bought the first DVD version of it, uh, which I don't have anymore. Then I bought the second DVD version because it came with extra features. Right. And I think this one came out in, uh, was it 2005? Hold on. There's someone at my
2: door. Oh, it's post.
1: <laughs> Speak of the devil. This is a fun interruption. I had ordered uh, the well, like I said, I had the two DVD version of of Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. uh, with the because I, I wanted all the special features. I wanted the conversations and all that stuff, the documentaries with Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, how he got the part and whatnot. Um, and so I have that. Then one of my buddies was getting rid of his Blu-rays and it happened to have the Silence of the Lambs Blu-ray in it. And I was like, well, why not get that upgrade? He's going <laughs> to charge me two or three bucks for it. That'll be great. And then just recently in February, uh, Criterion released uh, a updated version of Silence of the Lambs. And so I was like, well, why not? I'm going to get that one again as well. And just lo and behold, right now, my uh, my copy of Silence of the Lambs was damaged. And so, right now, they actually sent me a new booklet and it came in the mail today. So, here it is the undamaged <laughs> booklet for timing. my. That's exactly, terrifying. recording on Silence of the Lambs. Uh. And I have my brand new booklet on Silence of the Lambs and it looks fucking great.
0: You spook easily, Starling?
2: Not yet, sir.
0: He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine a killer is on the loose
2: keeps them alive
0: for three days then he shoots them skins them and dumps them a rookie fbi agent is on his trail he's got real physical
2: strength cautious precise and he's never impulsive he'll never stop
0: but in order to track him down she'll have to match wits i'll help you catch him clary believe me you don't want hannibal actor inside your head with the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. but oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him. Do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily.
2: You call this easy, sir?
0: Ah! Lester's missing hand arm Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do?
1: Yeah man Silence of the Lambs is just ingrained in pop culture so much now it's been in yeah. everything I mean like it's the first the first time film. I even
2: heard of it it was like a reference in the Simpsons and then basically like like most things you hear of as a kid you learn the references right. in in cartoons and and other TV shows before you ever fucking see the thing and so by the time I was. I, it was like a teenager when I, I, I. My dad was like, "You should be, you know, watching some classic films. You know, you have right. a serious oh, missing gap in 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 your film knowledge. One of them was Silence of the Lambs, and it, then you just see all these things suddenly clicking into place. I mean, I knew the fucking the the tongue slither thing was clear. Yeah, that exactly. Film, but... Just even the idea, like the, the the name Clarice, uh, keeps coming up in, in all these references, yeah. and I'm like, who the fuck is Clarice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And the reason we came to this is is one of the weirdest reasons. Um, I, I I'm I'm actually teaching this film right now. Yeah. Uh, in a cinema and literature course that I'm going to be giving at the college, and we're basically uh, I'm I'm trying to piece this together with uh, the other Jason, the Jason that comes on the show regularly when we're talking about Marvel movies, and. Um, we were looking for something to kind of exchange. He, he had taught the class before and he had done a bit of Shakespeare in it and it really (laughs) didn't take with the kids. And so I said, well, how about, you know, he, he, he wanted to do silence of the lambs. No, he wanted to do the lion King. Sorry. And so I was like, Oh, I have a perfect movie to pair with the lion King. Uh, Let's do silence of the lambs. And he was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) How do you, how do you compare these two movies? And so I said, well, I'll, 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 Make the notes. I'll I'll show you what it is, you know. Because I mean, if we're gonna have a survey of of literature and also film at the same time, I think we should have a common thread going through everything. And so what mm-hmm. I did is, uh, he wanted to teach the hero's journey, uh, going through the Lion King, you know, looking at archetypes and whatnot, uh, which is the the Lion King is a perfect example of. It's a fantastic movie, and I mm-hmm. said, well, how about we use Silence of the Lambs to show what the hero's journey is from a female perspective, um, and yeah, we absolutely. basically. I built a class around that and also looking at how, like, there are certain motifs and whatnot that that kind of show up in Silence of the Lambs that can be comparable to a fairy tale. And that's what we're going to get to in the second part of the show. Mm. And then I wanted to sandwich that in with Psycho uh, as well to show where kind of – A natural
2: compliment to Lion King. <laughs> well,
1: the thing is, is that it's more a question of how uh, Hitchcock was the first guy to actually break the rules when it came to – the hero's journey, you know? It actually yeah. starts off as a hero's journey with, with um uh Janet Lee's character, uh Marion Crane, and then like at the end of the first act she's dead. <laughs> and then you're yeah. like, Well, what journey are we going on now? Well, it's, it was just, just a vessel to get to one place. And so <laughs> I I wanted to show like how how um Hitchcock was one of the guys that actually changed the rules and one of the reasons why those rules Uh, are good the changes that came out of it is because we get movies like silence of the lambs you know Mm. 30 years later where a guy's like you know what i'm going to change the rules and i'm going to bend these ones and i'm going to try to show that you know maybe women are a little bit better off without men (laughs) so (laughs) absolutely (laughs) uh, and uh, because predominantly right now in in the the school where i am uh, there are a lot of of uh, there are a lot more women than there are men that i am teaching and especially when it comes to literature and cinema you want to be able to show them uh films or read stories that are going to be a little bit more Mm female-centric so that they can see themselves represented on screen in strong ways uh yeah so to me it's it's uh it's a
2: perfect film and Uh, yeah i I mean most of us would assume it's a perfect film there is something i mean when i was researching the film apparently there is a a big backlash about the the portrayal of of uh, trans people in the film. Yeah, uh, Demi uh, talks
1: just, about it in the documentaries on the on the DVDs. It's actually yeah, kind of interesting. Th- he felt he felt bad about it.
2: Yeah, the great because he didn't see it that way at all. No, uh, exactly. and I'll be I'll be going into it in a little better detail as we go along. But I mean, I, just as a preface for the notes and all, I don't think it's a fair criticism of the film at all i mean especially because like jamie gum is a victim in this film and i mean in my interpretation i mean it's it's going to be a little back and forth i imagine as as we're going as we're talking through because obviously he is violent in the film but the film makes a pointed moment of stating from the from the most sane character which is clarice yeah that transgender and transsexual people are not violent by nature, you know. That just like everyone else, they're passive, you know. And so that violence actually comes, and I'll explain that a little as we go along. But it comes from uh, systematic abuse, and that's Lecter gives us that information as uh, in in the film. So we're not looking at uh, trans people and and seeing them as monsters. And Demi did state once. That the the argument was brought to him that it it, it did make him realize how little positive role models uh, and portrayals of trans people existed right, yeah. in film, and so obviously to see another one at the time, even today, uh, another trans person portrayed as as a villain, even a sympathetic uh, one that you might feel sympathetic for, is still far in favor of of negative portrayals than it is in positive and he did feel bad about that i don't think it's fair to levy that criticism at silence of the lambs because they are very even-handed in the betrayal and they actually i'll, I'll be going into it a little bit but I, i'll explain why the, it's it, why he's such a tragic figure in my view uh right. and, and 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 why his transgender has nothing to do and as it stated there with his violent nature whatsoever, you know? So,
1: but get into it now. I really want to hear what you have to say about this because it was one thing that I never picked up on when I was watching the movie as well. Mm. I, I never, in my mind, the way I saw, uh, James Gum. I'll probably be calling him Bill throughout because it's just yeah, easier. Yeah. That's what comes uh, to my yeah, mind. That's the
2: name they say more.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know, and it, it, that's that. To me, that's what the what's at the core of the film is that the 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 quest for identity. Identity is the main theme that, that runs through Silence of the Lambs, and it's mm. always been one that I I I had picked up on, but I'd always seen Bill as a killer. I yeah. never had made any association to uh, sexuality or anything like that because Lecter says that his crimes aren't necessarily related to that. They're
2: mm-hmm. more related
1: to who he thinks he is. And so now, now that you mention it, and when I saw Demi and I had no, like when I watched the documentaries, I was like, really? I had no idea because <laughs> it's just not something that I'm, I, I'm aware of on yeah, a daily yeah. basis. So, I really want to hear this because this is going to be interesting for me because it would probably give me a new perspective on Silent Lambs and one that I don't have right now. So, please.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a smaller part of like the bigger picture, anyway. The actual thing I'm talking about today is uh, everyone's favorite buzzword term toxic masculinity. Uh, <laughs> nope. okay. which we did talk about um, on our super dark times episode, but we haven't really, Yeah, it, you, you wait for specific examples for it to pop up again. But like, I mean, when I first watched the film, I was kind of, it aired me a little, uh, or it irked me a little that such a big deal is made of Clarice being a woman. Uh, right. In the narrative, I was like, oh, I mean, I I expect, at the time, I was like, I, I expect women to be able to handle themselves in this nature. Why is the film constantly commenting on the fact that she's a woman through her interactions with people and majorly men? Uh, yeah. And it, 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 I was kind of like, what, what's it trying to say? Now, when on a rewatch, I see that the film is actually building a, an entire world around Clarice and commenting yeah. more... Less on, well, I would say evenly commenting on her ability to navigate it as much as shitting upon that world itself. And it's this, this big fucking patriarchal system. That she has to navigate through, and so I'll kind of what I'll I'll do is I'll I'll explain some of the the details of where toxic masculinity features in the film, how Clarice deals with it, and hopefully try to build a sort of picture that complements the subtext of the of the of the narrative. Because I mean, if you look at the real story, the, the the narrative really is the surface plot is Clarice teams up with Hannibal Lecter to save Catherine Martin from Buffalo Bill. I think most people will walk away from that. Yeah. From the film, with just that, you know, like, oh, it was a great little adventure. But the little bits and pieces in in the making of the uh, the framing of the story and and the framing of the dialogue actually give us this sort of far wider reaching agenda. And so, uh, we're going to talk about a few general subtopics and decisions in the film that center on the theme, the connections to one another, and by the end, hopefully, we'll have built a picture of what the film is saying, and then kind of wrap a neat bow on it. So uh, we'll start. With, uh, well, we'll try and aim towards starting with the main men before we get into Clarice herself. Cause we'll, we'll build a sort of framework of her interactions before we talk about where she's coming from. Uh, we'll build what she's up against <laughs> and we'll discount, uh, Buffalo Bill for now because, uh, I'll put it, uh, he'll, he'll be after these guys. Uh, cause then we'll see where he's coming from a little clearer. Uh, so. I think first, before we talk about the three main men, we should talk a little bit about how the men in the background and side characters factor into the story, and how they all exhibit usual traits in toxic masculinity, uh, which I I have a a handy little uh, list, apparently... These are the these are the traits. These are the, the the traits of toxic masculinity. And these
1: you're basing them on how you act with Maria on a daily basis. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? absolutely. A, I mean, I'm part okay, of this. Okay, cool. It's, it's, yeah, so this is, this so is said, based on how he treats his wife. Tur- so turns the mirror carefully. onto
2: myself, you know. Was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so right. The traits are dominance, devaluation of women. Uh, We'll put a little asterisk there also because, and it will come into this, uh, anyone who's not male, basically, because uh, homophobia plays, obviously, into a lot of how toxic masculinity works. Anyone who portrays uh, a nature that isn't just straight up male. uh, Suppression of emotions, extreme self-reliance, and how all of this promotes violence and affects others. So, the background, guys. There are so many moments, and it kind of hits you over the head with it a little bit, I guess. Oh, yeah. That Clarice (laughs) is just... Constantly getting shit upon or made or life made slightly worse by interactions with men, and I mean, there's there's too many to name. you could start with the first guy, like you know how the the first who the first guy is when he enters the film.
1: You mean in the forest when she's running?
2: Yeah, that guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just one dude running from the back, kind of like who the hell is following her.
2: Yeah, exactly. But I mean, think about how he's introduced, like, after following Clarice for a few minutes, climbing over the obstacles, and it's all this one take, she's got over this sort of net training. Right. The moment the man calls off screen, the camera actually stops and hovers, and then centers around him instead of her. So even the first guy in the film becomes this like focal point where it steals the the story away from Clarice, and that's just oh, one okay. random interaction. That guy doesn't even have a part. <laughs> and then after that, oh, there's so many images. Like there's the there's the elevator of tall men, as I like to think of it. <laughs> oh,
1: see, that's a funny thing because Demi actually cast Tall because he was going to uh, do this. The idea that everyone's always towering over Clarice, they wanted to have yeah. that big difference. The fact that they were actually wearing red shirts. To too, is like this idea of danger. Even, I mean, Spielberg uses that technique in Munich when he's actually putting red around everything like that. So red, mm. not only a symbol of desire, but also a symbol of danger, you know? And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Everyone's super towering. Even when she's walking through the the little, um, when she's actually yeah, on the, her way to see Crawford, yeah, I think the, it's, the it's either before processing or after. Thing.
2: Yeah, They're exactly. Like you know, everyone's
1: homes. just so much taller than she is, you know. So yeah, yeah exactly.
2: Yeah, and it really gives that uh, sense of how males in the film like impose on her. They all sort of tar over her. So there's that presence that drives through. Then, of course, we have um, discarding the three main men we're going to be talking about, which are Jack Crawford, uh, Doctor Chilton, and Hannibal Lecter. Uh, we can cut straight to the the prisoners. Uh, later on in the film, who obviously, of course, interact with her, her like you know, you, you, I can smell your cunt line. The fucking bigs, of course, the guy who talks who tosses the semen. Those are more extreme examples. There's also Barney, who even though he is a a, a positive uh, influence in the film, he's kind of well, he's he's more inert, he's passive. But Barney's the guy who holds over the pri- who looks over the prison and even in his short time on screen, he kind of locks her in with these prisoners and says, I'll be watching you. And, you know, there's creepy undertones to things that aren't necessarily creepy interactions, yeah. you know? <laughs> Uh, then there's like there's more scenes at the academy there's the apathetic driver and uh the the guy when they go visit the the lot uh there's the the room with the police uh staring that are led in a negative way by jack there's the there's the stop check guy who doesn't let clarice uh, approach Hannibal Lecter when she gets to the hotel uh there's even the bug guys the guys who know who analyze the moths yeah, one of them right. hits on her one of the fucking bug guys you know you can't get away from it um every step of the way there are guys making comments and giving clarice looks and most of the time getting in the fucking way of her work yeah the only time she makes real progress in her work without some string attached is with a character who apparently looking up on, on wikipedia is named ardelia map but it's yeah ardelia I, I don't remember her name being spoken in the film at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: she says she uh, she calls her Delia.
2: Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh so Delia Mapper is, is her colleague at the, at the at the institute who's one of the only like female uh, FBI agents working on the case. Uh, yeah. who actually helps with the case and, 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 and that's the only time that Clarice actually gets to make progress unhindered with no strings attached. Yep. Uh, so, th- I mean, that's just scene dressing. That's how the world itself is full of moments in which men form a roadblock for women. And then there's the, the three main men. Uh, yep. And you, you start the first one being Jack Crawford. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, first, uh, how and why Clarice is picked by Jack? She's, picked by Jack
1: because she's at the top of her class, is she not? But at the same time, uh, Chilton says uh, that it'll probably turn Lecter on. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. That's,
2: uh, that's, that's very true. That actually does underlie something that everybody is kind of scheming around her. Uh, yeah. And that's that's a constant thing that comes up, especially with Jack. Uh, so yeah, that, that might be right too. But most importantly, when it comes to why he chose her, it's because she called him out. It's not even that she got really good grades in the class. When she relates to her right, story put him about in how place, he had a yeah. lecture and she put him in his place. So, I mean, you could read it as her trying, him trying to, to punish her for trying to make a fool of him at some point or correcting him. Oh, come
1: on. Really? But, you think that? No, I okay. don't think that. I'm just saying that <laughs> the fact is.
2: She had to make a point of uh in yeah, their relationship. I gave of you an A calling him a- out, minus, sir. And yeah. he yeah, tries to level her down a bit. But that's the only reason she stands out to him, which is already this sort of fucking roadblock situation where she can't even get ahead without fucking calling him out. But I mean, beyond that, I mean women have to prove themselves to get attention. Uh so there already is an uphill battle and that comes this, this recurring image that we'll talk about over and over again but the very first thing we see Clarice do is climbing this hill at the yeah. very start of the film so I mean that that is that as a metaphor encapsulating the entire film yeah it's film. beautiful absolutely uh, it's encapsulated with these interactions as well with people like Jack Crawford who just present these fucking obstacles to get over to, to get good work done but mm-hmm. uh yeah, I mean, and then between that, you can go, you can move on straight to recurring imagery between all the men, the close-up. And now it's utilized in loads of different ways pre- between each of the characters, but this extreme close-up of the face for Crawford, Chilton, and Lecter, yeah. uh, is one thing that ties them together with Clarice, but mostly those three. We get a couple of sort of close-ups with, uh, Buffalo Bill as well. But um mostly it's these three who get who get a moment of extreme close up. Not only really does it help tie these main characters together and grants us the intimacy that's being forced on these interactions, you'll note the camera is always a little closer to the man than it is to Clarice. Yeah. Uh she's never drawn in, uh and that's great characterization just in the in the in the way that the camera informs us a little bit about Clarice. Um yeah. but we know she knows the game, you know. Uh she she can climb yeah. these obstacles. Uh, and just just through these simple images, which is brilliant bar on one occasion, which is her telling the story about the lambs to lector is the only time we get Clarice as close as any of the men. This is her being mm-hmm. super intimate and not guarded. She actually yeah. gives up a lot of herself in that scene.
1: Yeah, the interesting aspect of that is exactly how it's shot. And I'm glad you're pointing it out because uh, the closer we get to the end of the film, the closer the conversations, the deeper Lecter goes into Clarice mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of reading, well, reading her mind, but getting her to expose a little bit of what she's been through, uh, you know, the death of her father, you know, and the silencing of the lambs. It's interesting because even that the way that scene specifically plays out is that it starts off as a, at a distance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right? You have these ecstatic. Uh-huh. Establishing
1: shots where they're going to be confrontational through bars. And -hmm. it's one of the things that it's the only time in the movie that Clarice and Lecter actually talk through bars. The other times are going to be through a window. And the funny thing is, is that as the scene moves on, those bars slowly start to
2: disappear. Disappear. Uh And
1: so that's when Clarice starts to open up. And it's a really, really novel way of showing because that's the closest we become to Lecter. And it's also yeah. the closest we become
2: to Clarice. And it's really great. That exchange is beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, that shows us the, that moment for Clarice uh, that she gets intimately framed, that, that she does open up in a way that she yeah. doesn't open up with the other man. But when we look, uh, there is one other instance where it gets pretty close uh, with her first meeting with Dr. Chilton. After he starts flirting with her, it gets a close-up that matches his. Yeah. But as she rejects him in the, her reply, we can kind of assess that she's being fake intimate uh, to sort of move the conversation along. And uh, we, yeah. we get that kind of comment where it forces him to back off and we get a wide shot of him that makes him look small afterwards. So we kind of see how that use of intimacy is something in her arsenal as such. You know, it's something that she can actually utilize.
1: That's good. And I I mean, it's really interesting because what they do in that scene, you're absolutely right. Because when they pull back, Clarice is actually looking down on Chilton and actually makes him small. But in order for Chilton to regain some sort of power, what he does is when they go down the steps, Mm -hmm. it's an over the shoulder shot looking down at Clarice and what he's showing them showing her is the menace that is Lecter. And so she's, he's literally trying to terrify her just before she walks in to talk yeah, to the
2: guy. And absolutely. that's
1: a fucking weird manipulation in terms really of like him I mean, trying... It's a power struggle.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely... I actually do, I have it here. I mean, the fact that he tars over her when he's explaining how the nurse gets fat oh. has her tongue violently ripped off as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a total power move to try and intimidate her. And it's this possessive, almost sexual advance on her as he kind of gets, he looks like he's getting off on the fucking fact that he's trying to put yeah. her back in a place, yeah. uh, which is a plays into I mean, everybody knows he's a dick anyway, but I mean, there's the, the, just his face, but yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. But uh, yeah, it, it is. It's another neat touch just in the framing of, of the relationships between her and these men. Uh, right. But I mean, yeah, back to Crawford, most of his interactions in the film are laced with, of, with double meaning, there's this uh, sort of request slash demand for her to sit down when they're in the office, uh, which does put them in equal framing. But once she stands back up again, his eyes remain level. So we kind of see that he's kind of staring at her chest rather than glancing at her eyes or making actual contact with her. I That's that he's cool. constantly puts her down beneath him. Whenever she triumphs with false assurances of glory and a series of tasks that take her from the spotlight. So the relationship is a kind of toxic one in itself. There's Mm. the belittling scene with the police officers, of course, in which he actually leads them to belittle her by just inaction. Uh, uh, Other than that, there's the false deal he crafts behind her back to trick her into getting uh, Lecter's trust, uh, which he does twice. Uh, And there's the final handshake between her that resembles the hand touch Lecter gives her. The only time there's two of these hand touching moments where his thumb lingers on her hand. Just yeah. like Lecter, Lecter does this little reach of his thumb over to her hand and she it's snaps a, it back.
1: Yeah, it's his hand, his finger actually, just kind of sliding down hers. Yeah,
2: right. It suggests it suggests they both share Lecter and Crawford uh, like a relationship as, uh, or at least see themselves as protectors or surrogate father figures, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, while she either pulls her hand away or gives a clean fair handshake to assert her sort of position in that. Crawford, like Lecter and like Chilton, each each try to get one over Clarice in demeaning and belittling ways. But she's very uh, certain of her position in all these things. She does get tricked a couple of times, but she maintains like a stature for herself, and it's all kind of very uh, telegraphed easily through these little actions. Moving on to Chilton. We basically already talked about everything, uh, that, that comes from him, you know, that obvious, besides the obvious come on, again, he asserts that pressure over her in that, in that he invites her out to the town, but there's also, yeah, that close up match shot, there's the, the stalking of her down the staircase, there's the lurking, and then there's also the towering over her. So all these things, I mean, again, we already know he's a dick, but, uh, <laughs> just from their first interaction, we don't get lots of, Good-looking ladies in the, in in this department, but uh, all, on top of all of that, the, there's a lot in the in the camera work and the, his position over her that kind of informs their relationship. That he's just another manipulative man, and the fact that he also f- helps frame her later uh, kind of cements that he's in cooperation with Crawford in some degree. You know, I mean, he's obviously up against Crawford a lot of the time, but it's that idea that both of them share that uh, manipulative trait kind of flings them into the same category you know it's that's right. why you have to be there's so much overlap between the way shilton this clearly negative character <laughs> is portrayed uh next to to crawford and the the traits they share really gives away the sort of inherent toxicity between them especially in relation to clarice and then of course there is lector who i mean there's in a short fucking 20 odd minutes on screen <laughs> It has so much imagery and, and moments that you can pick through. So, I think the the easiest thing to get away, to take away from Lecter is that he is easily a little more complex than the others. Uh, our first shot of him, we see his whole body. So, yeah. we're immediately, he's upright and he's exposed to us. So, we don't get that with the others. Each of them hide behind desks, but not Lecter. He's right in front of you. You can see him top to bottom. You can't see his feet. So, I mean, unless you're, he's hiding away some fucking crazy knife shoes or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> nope. we can assume he's exposed well uh the others simply exhibit elements of toxic masculinity Lecter uh actually embodies it and it's driven mostly by his narcissism uh which if we go by uh hotchkiss's seven deadly sins of narcissism he right. actually in a short runtime uh exhibits all seven that is shamelessness magical thinking which is a sort of idea of your genius intellect or this sort of uh, perception of yourself as a perfect being something like that better than others and you can back it up by just thinking it about yourself and we get a lot of that laced in the dialogue that his position is something beyond others arrogance envy entitlement exploitation bad boundaries i mean bad boundaries is a given but the others as well he exhibits just through his exchanges through with clarice and right. also occasionally with shilton uh oh and uh, and of course uh, senator martin as well um Yeah, that's a wonderful exchange. <laughs> love, love the this love suit.
1: The suit. <laughs> and it's I just mean, the eyes on How- yeah, Hopkins when uh, he says it too. It's beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to touch quickly on one of the things that you were talking about in terms of Crawford, and then we'll jump back to the that. I was thinking about it quickly while you were while you were um, mentioning him. Uh there's an exchange in the car, and I wanted your feedback on this. There's an exchange in the car where Crawford doesn't look back at Clarice, and there was suggested in the movie by Hannibal Lecter, that uh, he he would ask, he asks Clarice, do you think that Jack Crawford wants you uh, sexually? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because uh, if you look at like uh, you know ape behavior, I mean, and I'm pulling this from King Kong. I don't know what the technical term is. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: the the fact that uh, um, uh, an ape like that is going to present its back oh, as a yeah. as a form of being receptive to uh sexual you know desires and like that yeah yeah yeah. trying to show that they're not interested but that actually proves that they are
2: they are interested yeah absolutely i
1: figured that maybe that demi left that in there to show that crawford is kind of ignoring or trying to ignore her to show her to try to uh, get her to be desperate for his attention
2: in a way yeah you know that's 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 a totally fair thing i think if you want to take it from ape to sort of more how relationships actually work that sort of prevention of connection is something that manipulation of of a person to try and get something out of them can be done through sort of neglect it's definitely a narcissistic move uh, in right. itself uh, that sort of belittling and of uh, of um of a relationship and uh, mm-hmm. damaging a relationship in order to get the other person to give a t- additional attention to you since they see damage they want to fix it her uh so I think you 're totally right i think that's that 's like a really actually very clever way of framing that his intentions without overtly going on about how it's, uh, he sexually wants her yeah is great so yeah back to Lecter. I mean uh, so we know we've established then that he he exhibits these traits of narcissism which in itself is a very uh root condition that's related to toxic uh masculinity because there's a lot of overlap in that and it's all it's it's I mean percentage-wise it's it's more related to men than women as well mm-hmm. but the thing with narcissists is that they can adopt like modes of of disguises, you know. Right. They they're able to basically adapt a relationship, usually in a manipulative way, to try and get things out of people. Mm-hmm. So the while they shake hands and become sort of chummy with one person, they can be belittling and give snide comments to another person. They met, they manifest this sort of persona for them to live behind, and so. The fact that we see these traits of narcissism, the the fact that the, the, the camera frames him from all these different angles far more readily than the other two shows that he has this adaptability about him. Yeah. Uh, that he has this ability to, to blend with whatever the circumstances require. And with that, we have plenty of insights in his brief screen time. I mean, their first real interaction, he tests Clarice, which obviously doesn't set up a great relationship. <laughs> uh <laughs> Then, you know, he's judging her for ruining the flow of conversation, his manipulation of her when she gets a semen on her face. Although, in fairness, I kind of read that scene as Clarice leaping to his arms to try and get information out of him. So uh, she's kind of playing him and understanding where he would go. Right. uh, That he'll try to be a paternal a gentleman about the, the relationship and try to get a closer relationship with her as she turns around. But she actually is using... Him at the same time to get some information rather than walk away with nothing.
1: It's all the perfect scenario of a first date. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Trying to manipulate each other and all that stuff. Yeah, chucking semen at the face. It sounds exactly. (laughs) It's just one of those things.
2: Yeah, I mean, so then there's also his obsession with sexual remarks, his mind games of Clarissa's dress wear, his need to analyze her and her history, which brings us to the quid pro quo relationship. Yeah. This is something that is so heavily one-sided in Lector's favor that it kinda of negates obviously the it's a definition of quid pro quo. Um because realistically, not only he has all the information and all the cards, he doesn't have to do anything. She has to give something to her. And at that point, if we also want to take in the fact that Clarissa's had to go through so much, even in the system where she has to fight uphill, you know, that the fact that when you get to that point and you still have to give a little bit of yourself quid pro quo with the next yeah. person to get a little bit of information. It just, the, the system is so heavily gamed that men think that it works that way. Like, no, you've made it this far. Give me a little bit of you, you know. It, uh, it's a little fucked up. It, it under, yeah, it underlies how terrible that fucking system is. But I mean, quid pro quo is actually, I mean, in common law regarding sexual harassment, it's actually in there. The, the gist of the quid pro quo thing is that if you have a, a supervising officer at work at at your workplace, who attempts to solicit sexual favors from you in order to get an employment action, which is anything, you know, firing, hiring, promotion, anything. Given evidence and certain alignments, you can take them to court for it. Translating that to the film, in Clarissa's position, it's not hard to draw ideas that she has to offer herself beyond any reasonable doubt so that she can do her job here. And it wouldn't be hard to make a reading of the film where you could read the three aforementioned men as employers in a workplace ladder and Clarissa's journey as one of trying to keep her position in a world filled with these sort of yeah. these workplace harassments. I'm keeping it more general, I didn't really want to go down that entire avenue. I'm just saying you could easily read it that way, and the fact that it's there uh just makes it this whole fucking toxic masculinity case. It's it's all so fucking Apparent. <laughs> mm. uh, and all encompassing. So, uh, Buffalo Bill, Jamie Gum here, we're supposed to see, I think, as a corrupted and empathetic f- victim of a bias system. Okay. Uh, that system being that toxic masculinity system. So, some di- disclosure. In the book, Jamie is actually abused by his mother, not a male figure. The film doesn't include that detail. So just that he's Shit, been the okay. victim of abuse and that violence has begotten more violence. So the omission that it was a maternal figure specifically, I think is in keeping with the theme here. It's a small edit on Demi's part, uh, to try got and ourselves keep it a in, in, Norman
1: in... Bates on our hands. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, in the, in the, in the, in the original story, that is how it would have played out. Okay. Uh, the, the changes here pin it they make it less specific to make it more ambiguous and open to interpretation right uh so that's why i think it we could argue it was done in favor of this reading uh but i mean you could you could spin it anyway it's up to yourselves but what if on top of that system of abuse that james goes through james is transgender and sees himself as a woman right okay
0: mm-hmm.
2: he even intended to change sexes and was rejected based on his history of being abused so a system <laughs> that's run by men prevents a man from exhibiting feminine traits due to a, a history of abuse you know and so i mean queer phobia homophobia transphobia that's all present in toxic masculinity as recurring traits so it's easy to connect the dots as we see Jame as a damaged product of a damaged system uh, a victim that wanted to escape toxic masculinity and was forced into it exhibiting these pressures you know right okay. so think about families that force sons to to man up, you know, to be a tough guy. Uh, it's just like it's pretty easy to imagine how that system corrupts men right uh let alone those who don't feel they're represented by masculinity whatsoever, so that pressure even affects you know man to be more a part of the system that 's how all encompassing it is that hmm. you 're not a part of the system you're you inevitably get corrupted by the system okay on top of all that, even his name is riddled with toxic masculinity uh buffalo bill it 's based on a sexist joke they say it 's because he rides women it's not it's like Which isn't even the cause of, you know, it's nothing to do with, he's not actually sexual as a, as a, as a criminal, you know, his, his crimes aren't based in sexuality. They, they target gender. Yes. You know, he targets women, but he doesn't have sex with them. No. But he gained this very, like, sexist joke name and it stuck. So even in the system that he is now a huge part of, he, he's been, like, marked as this sort of example of extreme toxic masculinity you know Hmm. going through these like several levels and so when it comes to james there's no other way i think to seeing him but as this sort of tragic figure of a corruptive and all-encompassing system that he simply was forced to become a part of right and I, i mean as i was saying earlier the violence of his of his crimes actually comes from the abuse and uh, Clarice and Lecter both clarify that in the story that him being a psychopath has nothing to do with the fact that he's transgender, but actually because he's been just abused by the system over and over again. And then what I think is the motive, the motive behind his crime, he would be violent because of the abuse, but he wouldn't be violent against women specifically if it weren't for the fact that he was prevented from having a, a, a sex change operation and being allowed to be a transsexual so he lives as this sort of repressed transgender character and that being forced into a system makes him a part of the system to a dangerous degree you know right And that, ex- that explains why he's so corrupted in the sense of this world you know i mean there's obviously Lecter, who in, in himself is just embodies like narcissism he has he embodies toxic masculinity in ways that are in a more intellectual and manipulative sense but james is more of a victim he's just a product of the system and him being stopped is just a, a factor of of where the femininity goes that it's just unfortunate that he becomes this sort of tragic figure because as I'll go into with Clarice ultimately he was supposed to be saved and he couldn't right and that's where we kind of bring the sheep into it clarice's underlying motivation is to stop the screaming lambs in her head right and that's, a, that's a traumatic moment from her past. And Lecter summarizes it on her behalf by stating that if she could only save one lamb, she could sleep well again and feel she's done right. The narrative gives us that lamb and it's Catherine Martin. It's a direct victim nearing slaughter at the hands of a systemic toxic masculinity so the battle of the system here is just this fucking lamb slaughtering system that is one metaphor for toxic masculinity and she just has to save another in the system from being slaughtered so we've got catherine martin who is now going to be another victim of the system, you know, right. and yeah, her yeah. battle is to s- protect this this woman from the system as she's been given this ability to navigate it to, to climb the uphill battle. Her role now is a protector of women in in yep. this world, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where we also see the lost lambs play into it. We've got Jam gum that's his role. He's the lambs that couldn't be saved. He's already just a part of the system, you know. I like that. So he's a lost cause and it's all the more disappointing on Clarice's behalf because she actually is inevitably forced to kill him to save the other lamb, you know. She has to confront the system to such a degree that she actually has to sacrifice those sheep to keep one alive, you know. And that's, you know, and that's a great inner turmoil. That great how fucked up the system is that basically you have to prioritize one over others. Just to keep some headway in against the system is fucking terrible. Yeah. And the film, I think, really does navigate that really well. Uh, so we see Clarice's journey, and I mean, it's, it's very much a hero's journey yeah as you were saying it's what you're teaching your class this woman who's able to battle against these odds and best the system in a sense even when all the odds are stacked in the pocket of men and benefit only men and puts down everyone else she is able to stand above it all but the film also gives us a great role model in Clarice uh, as an active agent within the system because it gives us some of the traits necessary to fend off toxic masculinity so it's not only just telling us what the system is but giving us an example of what traits can be exhibited by someone who's able to navigate it as we see through her it's someone able to to be emotional and intelligent Mm -hmm. she relies on others and isn't afraid to express that when necessary she relies on jack she relies on whatever her name was map (laughs) ardelia man ardelia Uh, yeah but uh but she's also independent enough to carry herself in any given situation she's not judgmental As Because we see she sides with transsexuals, after all, in stating that they are not violent in nature. She doesn't value social dominance, as she does go along with the quid pro quo system. She's not inherently violent, only when forced to be so when it comes to fighting Jamie, And even then, she's shaky and and unprepared-looking-seeming in that moment, because she's not readily a violent person. And she navigates the system well by carrying these traits, because she literally exhibits the opposite of the traits of toxic masculinity, those things we set up at the very start, that dominance, devaluation of women, suppression of emotion, extreme self-reliance, she is the opposite of these in that she's far more flexible, far more emotionally charged, far more able to pick herself away from those traits. I mean, she can't stop the system entirely. Uh, she merely etches out a victory within it, you know, she saves the lamb, but I mean, that's why we get the ending that we do get, in which she gets a call from, from Lecter on the phone, where he's hunting down Chilton, like, you know, <laughs> the toxic masculinity world is just gonna go on, men are gonna hunt men, and, and (laughs) that's just how things work yeah but the world is messy like that and we get that from the very start in the opening image because the very beginning we see these interweaving branches and this mist You know, that's our very first shot and it's this idea that the world is this complex maze of the natural hidden behind this thick layer of fog you know it's chaotic and and hard to fucking place yourself in and here we have a story about the complex nature of people, sexuality filled with obstacles to avoid and climb over and we see Clarice struggle but ultimately navigate it all you know And, and we see that from the start she's one of the only people able to walk through this mist and make her own way she can climb over any obstacle she obviously works up a fucking sweat doing so but she can do it you know yeah. and that's that great idea that she's she can fight against these she sees the world as this big natural chaotic mix and she fights against it she can work through it it's a miniature tableau of the story to come uh, which ends just as it starts with Clarice being called by a guy <laughs> The system goes on again. That call the adventure also, if yeah. you want to go with the hero's journey way, you know, the call to the adventure strikes up again. But yeah, essentially she's kind of like a superhero in a world of terrible, terrible men. <laughs> yeah,
1: I really agree. I agree with that. Uh, that was one of the main things that I thought was really fun because when I was teaching the class to the students, I told them, here's your first... Female superhero is Clarice Starling, <laughs> and, and it Definitely. was fun because I mean, when you look at all the like the, the fairy tale motifs and whatnot, all heroines are passive. We're starting to get strong female characters, and there's a lot of a lot of backlash with regards to that, especially in Star Wars. Idiots, <laughs> and uh-huh. I think that. Uh, Clarice is, is is a fantastic character because of that you know she actually does embody some form of grace there is uh, she's able to stay feminine in a man's world and I thought that was really really important yeah absolutely for, able, yeah. for her to be just you know an able-bodied woman they don't make a big stink about it she's not making a big stink about it it's mm-hmm. just all the guys around that are like hey you gotta be careful you know I know I mean
2: how, how, how more relevant can a film be that's you're basically you're watching Silence of the Lambs watching twitter
1: (laughs) oh man isn't it it's amazing it is amazing (laughs) you're absolutely right with regards to that there's a girl in the room what is she saying it's fucked up yeah yeah but uh i mean like it it is a struggle and i think that that's what i wanted to get to with you you know the idea i brought it up a little bit earlier with regards to the identity theme and i loved how you brought up the fact that we see lector entirely from head to toe as soon as we see him for the first time because that's Mm -hmm. not who our two other characters are presented. Clarice, we see her head first. We see her hands climbing up and all that. She slowly reveals herself to us. Also, the first time we actually see James Gum, apart from the fact that he's actually shown through images of what he's created, as opposed to who he is as an individual, Mm -hmm. we see his eyes first, and then we switch directly to his point of view which means we're looking through the goggles which are the night vision which shows us that he has a very skewed perception of how the world is yeah and it's absolutely. very clever the way that they actually show that and i thought it was kind of funny because if we have clarice navigating a man's world and then we have bill trying to be a woman and we have Lecter, who is actually at the center of both of them it's kind of like mm-hmm. a, a gravitational pull where you'll have one guy that is very comfortable with his identity, even if it's what you pointed out, that it's, it's very, he's very comfortable with his own identity. Yeah. And the fact that Clarice basically is trying to stay a woman in a man's world, not necessarily give in to every one of those advances or trying to lower herself to their standards. She's being manipulated and tricked into becoming as devious as they are, like you pointed out, you know, with Mm -hmm. regards to how Chilton deals with her with uh, Crawford is another uh, great example. And then you look at how Bill is trying to become a woman. And it's very interesting because when we see the inside of Bill's, uh, basement for the first time it's a very sharp contrast with how we see Clarice. Clarice is being looked down by men but Mm -hmm. no one sees Gump. The mannequins yeah, that are in there—they're a really interesting motif uh, that they use. Uh, the mannequins that they use in the film—you'll have one that's going to be in the car, where you'll have uh, Benjamin Rasbale's head. You'll also have uh, Frederica Bimmel's house, where she actually shows there's a man uh, sews, sorry, where she actually has the mannequin that has uh, that's staring out the window. But then in James Gum's basement and Buffalo Bill's basement, you'll have these mannequins that are all dressed up, but every single one of them is beheaded like he there's no women looking at jame gum there's no men that are looking at jame gum Gunn. jame gum's perception of the world and him trying to become a woman has nothing to do with women it has everything to do with him he yeah. isn't trying mm-hmm. to navigate anything that has to do with how women perceive the world it's how he sees women should perceive the world in a way I don't know if that makes any well, sense No, I,
2: I think it makes sense I think the idea that his his, uh, his entire story comes from something very personal and yet the world takes advantage of that and shapes him into so when he actually exits the world he's this killer but when he's in his basement he's alone he's unseen you know realistically everything is internalized for him and it's only because the world dragged him out of uh, dragged his ongoing debate with himself into the open it forces it has forced him to sort of have to take on something that he's not you know and ultimately that's why i think he's kind of very sympathetic it's easy to sympathize with him because he's being dragged out kicking and screaming into this terrible fucking world when it's really his entire drama comes from something that is just very much about him you know? And that's what I thought was interesting because
1: if it's all a quest for identity, you can actually look at it as Clarice. if Clarice is able to deny herself any form of masculine traits, mm-hmm. I think that in a way by stopping Gum from killing another woman, she actually is able to prevent him from becoming something that he possibly shouldn't be. He's not a mm. killer. Like you said, he's transgender. And the thing is is that the way he's going about it is going about it in a, well, I'll say quote-unquote wrong way because, like you said, it has to do with toxic masculinity. And Mm -hmm. the only person in here that's not struggling with identity at all is Lecter, and they're revolving both around them. The more Clarice navigates towards the male world, the more we see Gum actually navigate towards the woman world, right? The fact that she becomes Mm -hmm. a little bit more deceptive and devious and tries to go with Crawford's plans, the more that we see what Gum is actually doing, right? But in the center of that, you know, once the gravitational pull goes the other way, where clarice actually relies on her instincts relies on who she is as an individual like embracing the femininity that she has going with female instinct you know, yeah, something stops, that I don't know yeah, much she stops, about, she stops st-
2: relying so much on her connections to the man she ends up that's where Adelia also becomes a big signifier because that's how she makes exactly. the leap to finding james that she starts taking her own initiative, in the room when stops. she's there exactly you're totally right
1: and i think that's actually really great uh because it 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 makes this movie a little bit more important. You know what I mean? Not just in mm-hmm. terms of like what it is, uh, you know, in terms of like a, it came out at a moment in time where it's actually blending genres where you'll have, you know, a, it's a little bit gothic horror. When, you know, the mist with, where you're showing with the woods and all that stuff and actually mm-hmm. we're going into a several basements. You have these castles with these hallways and all that. Whatnot, right. yeah, you know. Yeah. you know you'll have Lecter locked in a tower at one point and we'll get to what Catherine martin is locked in at the bottom of a well as well uh you'll also have the psychological thriller you'll have the the police procedural and you'll have the the one thing that i really appreciated when i started watching it for this angle is the fairy tale and not in a mm. condescending way i mean i mean that in the best way possible you know the idea of a cautionary tale or a, a morality tale you know the fact that clarice is a positive female figure you know and she doesn't have a romantic relationship in the movie you know what mm. i mean it's mm. not something that i think that she's suppressing it's just something that she's not interested
2: in because she's, you know yeah, she, she wants super to do not a part do. of this story at all so i mean it doesn't yeah and
1: i mean she does go through changes obviously Mm -hmm. okay and i mean and i think the big change that she goes through is accepting the death of her father you know because the silence in the lambs is intricately tied in with how she sees her father the fact that she that was the first summer she went away and that's the side the screaming of the lambs is essentially her losing her innocence you know it's Mm -hmm. it's very it's a potent thing but it's also a, a a trope that has to do with innocence that we've seen in so many different things yeah but the interesting aspect is that she isn't solving the case to prove herself or gain acceptance from a man. And I think that that's absolutely crucial to the point. She doesn't live happily ever after. She moves on to the next case. Yeah, absolutely. She does her job, you know. And what I wanted to do is kind of just navigate that a little bit and go uh, to point out a lot of the fairy tale motifs that are inside Silence of the Lambs. The fact that it's actually loosely based on Little Ride Riding Hood or Little Red Cap, mm. whatever you want to call it. There's so many different versions of that story. Anyway. <laughs> and uh, before I get to that, uh, I wanted to just point out a couple of the elements that in, that are included in fairy tales. And you guys have heard me talk about this a little bit more before. Uh, one of them is obviously the use of the number three. Uh, mm. So three is a little bit, uh, it's, it's, it's it's there, it's kind of masked inside Silence of the Lambs, but it exists there. So Clarice uh, meets Lecter three times in the jail cell before he's moved to the other one. So the ones that are behind glass as opposed to the one with regards to the bars that we were talking about earlier, she actually goes down and meets him three times there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill has five victims, but he's on his way of killing a sixth victim. So we have that. Six is divisible by three. There are three main characters in the film that are actually gravitating around each other. So you'll have Bill, Clarice, and Hannibal. And one of the most intricate things that... Shows up and even, I mean, Hannibal addresses it and it's the uh, three stages of the butterfly, the moth, you know, that that we see in the film. Uh, that's actually linked to, you know, Christ's resurrection. So life, death and resurrection, which is exactly what Bill's trying to do, which is why he puts mm-hmm. that uh, moth uh, cocoon inside Frederica Bimmel's mouth. There's also one in Benjamin Raspail's. He's actually symbolically showing that there's a transformation about to happen. You know, he's in this chrysalis stage before he actually becomes A butterfly. Mm -hmm. The main motif throughout the movie that is actually really big in in, uh, fairy tales is obviously the damsel in distress. So we're saving a princess from a witch in this case as well. Catherine Martin is that princess and it's one of the interesting aspects of it is that we have a woman saving a princess and not a man in this case and that's really important to actually subverting a little bit of genre expectations when it comes to Yeah, it's like an updating. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Obviously cannibalism which is pretty much (laughs) self-explanatory. It's one of those things that (laughs) happens a lot in fairy tales, and uh, I mean, they call him Hannibal the Cannibal. It's not for no yeah, reason. Yeah. He does eat people. Do you know what?
2: Weirdly, when I was talking about Hannibal, I never brought up the fact that he actually eats people. Obviously, that's a fucking toxic masculinity thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, if you want to take it in a metaphorical yeah, sense, that's as what well. I mean. yeah, that's great. <laughs> But I don't know why I didn't fucking bring it up. It's funny, funny enough, because it's not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about him. Yeah, he's, either. he's a charmer. Yeah, I think of him as a psychologist. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, or a psychiatrist. Oh, I mean, yeah, or. yeah,
2: psychologist.
1: <laughs> but anyway, if we go back to Little Red Cap, and uh, I'll bring in Snow White. Wearing different appendages comes into play when it comes to fairy tales. So if we look at Little Red Cap, you'll have the wolf. Essentially, that is going to wear the grandmother's clothes in order to trick Little Red Cap uh, and then eat her, you know, so he basically goes, he eats the grandma and voila, he decides to put on her stuff. And if you look in Snow White, uh, you'll see that the uh, witch actually changes her appearance to full Snow White. And if we transpose that onto the Silence of the Lambs, then you'll have Bill who's making a suit out of skin to become a woman. So he's basically doing exactly what the wolf does, only in a in a stranger tragic way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But you'll also have Lecter who cuts off someone's face in order to escape, Mm -hmm. you know. So he cuts off Pembry's face and then you'll have also Clarice who isn't necessarily real FBI yet. She only becomes that at the end of the movie where that brings in golden elements that have to do with at the end of a fairy tale you'll get this gold while well, she gets her gold FBI mm-hmm. badge this idea of like she's saved the day she gets a, a pot of gold
0: yeah, you yeah, know absolutely. it's a
1: worldly wealth of some sort no worldly yeah. wealth is obviously it could be experience as uh, instead of just actual gold and I think in this case you have both you know Clarice has actually saved someone she gains the experience she gains to be like become she gains her true identity she's true FBI she's actually still a woman but it's also represented in the fact that she gets that bad um, one of the interesting aspects, though, that that are you know also motifs that are included in folklore uh, are the uh, birds, uh, symbols of freedom. You know, and Clarice's last name is Starling, mm-hmm. and the first sound we hear in the film that's not music is actually a bird. Right. Uh, then you'll see birds in cages when C- Clarice visits uh, the Bimmel house. And there's a few insert shots of birds here and there. There's always a little bit of Twittering going on as as she's <laughs> going through through the world. And it's really fun to see that because if you look at how the birds are in cages at the Bimmel's house, it actually represents not only who Clarice is as an individual. She's actually kind of caged in, which is why we have that that uh, those camera shots like we were talking about a little bit earlier where she tries to open up. But you also have uh, that symbolically representing the victims of Buffalo Bill, the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, there are all these caged birds. They're seeking some sort of freedom from this toxic masculinity and some of them will be able to escape or one of them will be able to escape and Clarice as well at the end of the movie. But sadly, we have these other tragic individuals that are there. Um, Mm -hmm. Another one is cats uh, that are linked (laughs) to resurrection as well because they have nine lives and there are two cats in the film. One uh, in the window outside Catherine Martin's house and one inside the Bimmel house, both indicating the process through which Bill uh, intends to transform them. You know, yes. so you'll have the idea of life, death, and then using them to transform himself. He's going to resurrect them in a different form. The interesting aspect is when you kind of delve into uh folklore, the cat is usually representative of a nearby witch. Um And that's <laughs> kind of fun because if you look at – and I'll take the most – the easiest example, it would be Lucifer in the Disney adaptation of Cinderella.
2: Lucifer right, yes, uh-huh. is
1: a crazy fucking cat. And then he is basically the embodiment of the evil stepmother, the witch in that story. Yes, absolutely. And so when we see Buffalo Bill for the first time through the eyes looking at Catherine Martin, the cat is upstairs in the window. So we have that. We have this nearby witch that's actually going to be able to grab uh, one of the women and then, you know, transform her. And the other one is in the Bimmel house where the cat is actually just between the two rooms. Yes. uh, Where Clarice is actually in Frederica's room looking through her things. She finds those images of uh, Frederica inside the uh the little um it's like
2: the ballerina box the music box
1: yeah the little the ball- little music box you know, yeah that's what i was looking for they find that she when she finds the pictures inside uh frederica's music box and then she turns and she looks at a cat and the cat brings her into the other room mm-hmm. you know this is a place where bill was you know so yes. there's this symbolic spiritual witch that's actually inside that room where there's an aura present that hasn't necessarily escaped and the, this cat represents that Obviously, this brings us to the butterflies and moths, which are also symbolic of transformation. Lecter flat out says it in the movie. You don't have to look too far for it. Yeah, But in folklore, these are regarded as pagan versions of angels. The butterfly is but the moth is the opposite it's an angel of death right yeah way. okay <laughs> and so but there's so many butterflies in silence of the lambs you just have to like look around the frame as opposed to the characters when obviously demi isn't shoving them in your face
0: uh-huh. what
1: you're going to do is like even in uh, i think the one that was uh that most cleverly used is actually in frederica bimmel's house right. not in her room per se but when clarice actually sees the cat goes into the other room if you look just to the right there there is a butterfly motif on the wall yeah. Kind of right. like a, this clue where you're entering the right uh-huh. location, you know? This also brings us to like the, the, when Clarice actually walks into the house, we know that, you know, James Gum is the killer. But then if you look just onto the right as well on the wall, you'll have a, a, a picture of a butterfly. Then after that, the moth is going to come settle on some string. Uh, and that's where Clarice actually goes like, holy shit, I actually am in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the ones that are the most impressive to me are, uh the use of butterflies uh and the way that Hannibal hangs Pembry in the form of a butterfly on the cage yes, you know the yes, idea of, of, of this transformation Lecter actually transforms that cop in a francis bacon style painting that they used as as a as a mock for as inspiration for how they should like have him disembowelled in front oh, of all God. this and it's actually a mirror image of what james gum does when he's actually going for his pose when he puts his penis between his legs when oh, yes. he's dancing to know uh, goodbye horses, and he lifts up. You know that's his transformation. He's literally become a butterfly yeah, in that to moment a butterfly. in time. That's brilliant. You uh-huh. could also, I mean, the the lector part. You could I see it as a butterfly, but you could also read it as as um, Clarice is the one who actually provoked him into freedom, so that he could be symbolically a bird as well. Yeah, that's and yeah, so that's what I thought it was
2: at the time. But I, I like the, like the cross reading f- when it's uh, when it's also a butterfly as well. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: absolutely, uh, and this points to William Blake, obviously we're going to bring in the red dragon into this, that famous painting of the red dragon from the back with its wings spread wide open. Mm. Uh, you'll, you'll have that in manhunter and you'll have it also in, uh, the, the, the most recent version of that film, which is the red dragon with Edward Norton, where, um, uh, dollar Hyde actually has the tattoo of the red dragon on his back, right. you know? And so the red dragon painting is just that, that flapping of the wings, this idea of like, there's an apocalypse coming. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is tied into the motifs that Thomas Harris had already started before he got into The Silence of the Lambs and The Butterfly is an evolution of that red dragon, in my opinion, anyway. Moving on from those 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 motifs i want to bring in one last one and it's uh, the um, the red- repetitive refrains that you'll have uh, whenever you're in uh, re- like nursery rhymes or even in folklore uh, you know mirror mirror on the wall uh, you know you're going to hear that many many yeah, times yeah. In, in snow white the fact that you're going to have this rhyming imagery you'll have it with the butterflies and the moths that i was talking about mm-hmm. there but one of the one that I, I, I really thought was beautiful was the one that they use with the lambs. You know, the fact that Clarice mentions the lambs, the fact that Hannibal draws Clarice with the lamb, and then you'll have Precious, the dog.
2: The dog. That yeah. is mm-hmm.
1: a fluffy white little lamb. <laughs> and I love that because it's all related to the loss of innocence. You know, I think that Precious is the lamb in Bill's life, his one claim to innocence, the one thing that he can take care of. And Precious is his lamb. He treats precious the way he wants to be treated.
2: Mm -hmm. You know what I
1: mean? And it Mm -hmm. kind of really is interesting because then you kind of have to bring in the sacrificial lamb as well (laughs) from the Bible. Yeah. Where, Mm -hmm. you you know, when it brings into what you were talking about where Clarice has to make a choice, which one, which lamb does she save? Yeah. Does she save gum and try to give him a second chance or does she save Catherine Martin who basically hasn't done anything wrong Mm. that she hasn't been swallowed up by the system the way that you pointed out. And I think that the beautiful image that they have of Hannibal's drawing on top of the table where Clarice is actually holding the lamb and then the repetitive imagery that you have with Catherine Martin Actually, walking outside of the house, holding precious,
2: yeah, mm-hmm. is that
1: repetitive imagery that's so beautiful. And Demi yeah. had to really want to pick so, that up on. So, that, so you know?
2: yeah, so the innocence is then saved if in 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 the exactly, place of yeah. the sort of sacrifice.
1: But the biggest, the biggest, and the most interesting motif for me uh, comes from uh, in the form of the tower at the end of fairy tales. Mm. The tower is uh, well, not necessarily in all end of fairy tales, but it's usually where the princess is being held yeah. usually a prisoner of outside forces or to time Itself, Scholar Joyce Thomas says that the tower in fairy tales uh, has a few iterations such as the attic or the antiquated clock tower where the the, the, the hands on the clock stand still. Just think of uh, Back to the Future. Okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. You have this clock tower where time no longer moves forward. There's, there's that one point in time where everything changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can even bend the rules if you want to and you can include the coffin. The coffin itself is a place where stand, time stands still. So in Snow White would be uh, Uh, Her being locked in that glass coffin is a representation of being locked in the tower as well. Uh, So if you look at fairy tales themselves, the towers, the most famous ones are going to be in Sleeping Beauty. They're going to be in Rapunzel, Beauty and the Beast, and I'll even throw uh, the Attic. In Cinderella, in there is a form of tower because that's where the evil stepmother locks her up locks
0: her as well yeah, so that the priest
1: right. does not get her uh, there. So if we look at these associations, you know, the tower in fairy tales, uh, the associations with the attic, the clock tower itself, they usually are symbolic of the lack of forward-moving time. Okay? So it's a place that embodies the past. Uh, a place where characters who are imprisoned no longer abide by the regular notions of time. Mm. Okay. If we look at Briar Rose, Sleeping Beauty is said to be asleep for a hundred years up in there and the things go around. Everyone's asleep there. So time literally stops. She doesn't age. Uh, if you look in Beauty and the Beast, all the objects and the beast are frozen in time tied to that flower in the tower in the Forbidden West Wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Snow Wake dies for a time. Uh, Cinderella's days are a continuous cycle of never-ending present in the form of chores, and then she goes back up to the attic to sleep, only to wake up again and go back down to see what she has to do again. So it's this perpetual thing uh, that goes on and on and on. And I think the one that I find the most interesting is the one in Rapunzel where the tower is actually the witch's design where right. she keeps mm-hmm. Rapunzel a little girl. There are no stairs that go up and there are no stairs that come down, obviously. <laughs> what I find interesting is we also find spindles in those towers. If you think of Briar Rose, you know, Aurora or Sleeping Beauty, depending on how you want to call her, she pricks her fingers on, on, a, on a spindle and falls asleep. Uh, and if you look at Cinderella, that's where she actually makes her dress up in the attic, you know, a place where she wants time to move forward, but she's condemned to using whatever materials she has. Hmm. If we transpose all that imagery onto Silence of the Lambs, well, we've got Bill who sews, you know, so we oh, have that symbolic spindle <laughs> that's there. He's also stuck in time. He's stuck in that moment. He's waiting for someone to transform him into a princess, and yet it never happens. So he takes it upon himself to create the princess he thinks he should be. Mm. Uh, He himself becomes a damsel in distress in a way. Mm -hmm. The distress is a little bit more psychological than it is physical, but if we transpose that imagery onto him, that's what it is. And therefore, the basement itself, where he actually keeps Catherine uh, Martin locked, is a representation of his psychological state. Like the audience and Clarice herself at the end of the movie is actually navigating his brain, his thoughts, and his innermost desires. Mm -hmm. So the mannequins, again, like another motif that I pointed out earlier, represents the way he sees women. Not as people but as objects and that's like I think Clarice and Ardelia actually uh, listen to Senator Martin's speech where she's actually saying Catherine's name over and over again in order for Bill to see her as a person as yeah. opposed to the object that she is. Now if the basement itself is a representation of Bill's thoughts and Bill puts a woman at the bottom of a well that would reflect his deepest desire to become A woman.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And the interesting thing is, is that if we have Catherine Martin, who is without time at the bottom of that well, Bill becomes the witch that we were talking about. So like in Snow White, who tries three times to kill Snow White so she can remain the fairest one of all. You know, he's basically killing all these people in order to make himself the fairest one of all. And if you look at the tower in Rapunzel there is only a small window for her to see out of so the world is actually surrounded by trees and she doesn't necessarily know how it's going that's why I thought that the tower in um Rapunzel was actually very much representative of the well in Silence of the Lambs because if we see Catherine Martin looking up it's a very narrow point of view yeah mm-hmm. because it's Bill's point of view looking down and he doesn't see a wider aspect to anything that's going on. His very very narrow-mindedness is where he's actually trapped. Catherine Martin is who he wants to become, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, he's not looking at the bigger picture. And that brings me to what I think is really interesting. It's the fact that the well itself is an inversion of
2: the tower. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Okay? Because the witch is a man in this story where the tower goes up and the man needs to go up to rescue a woman... Uh-huh. This is a story where a woman rescues a woman and therefore because of that perspective change or that change in perspectives, the f- tower is actually flipped upside down.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And I
1: thought that was a really clever way of looking at it because there's obvious, you know, you could, you could basically say that yes, there's a phallic symbol in the tower. A man yeah, will yeah. become a man when he actually rescues a woman. So there's, there's that giant penis sticking up in the air. <laughs> Where he actually has to climb up, and then after that, he'll he'll wake up the woman, which is you know very violent, you know. But and then after that, if you flip it upside down, where a woman is actually uh, actually going at, it, you could have that well as a representation of the vagina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into that into greater detail. I mean, the images are very <laughs> clear to me, <laughs> and so yeah, I thought that that was uh, a really interesting way of looking at it. Shaping it as a fairy tale, but a fairy tale designed to empower women. Yeah. You know, the idea of, you know, getting out that toxic masculinity that you're talking about, fighting it, but fighting it in order to save women, not necessarily empower men. And I think that the only choice that Clarice had at the end of the movie is exactly what you pointed out. She had to shoot gum. He is a tragic figure, but he is also... The example of the most most toxic, like you said, yeah, it's yeah, not his yeah. fault. It's not his fault, but yeah, he's a, at he's the a, same he's time, a, he's a
2: byproduct of the system. But he is absolutely exactly. a a product of the system. So you you still have to you know conquer that, defeat that in some way to at least save the innocent. Uh, so you no, know, yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, such a cool read too. I think it's so cool that the uh, the tar works into it. You reminded me a little. Uh, of another story in which it's a sort of a female hero who conquers mm-hmm. a, a male system to etch out a little living for herself. And it reminded me of Jane Eyre, which is interesting. Absolute, yeah, absolutely. Because Victorian Gothic. Also, yeah, exactly. There's that motif, that the Gothic gets into it. But there's also uh, an attic, which doubles as a psyche for a male character in that story. Absolutely. Which is, uh, Bertha Mason is, is Rochester's first wife, and he locks her in the attic... And she Absolutely. lives as this ghost around this manor that it's supposed yep. to represent this sort of, this egotistical but sh- fragile man and this sort of tortured Byronic hero. And, and, and it's Jane Eyre who basically confronts her, ends up burning the fucking building down obviously but i mean <laughs> uh, by yeah. by sort of forcing it out it makes uh it makes an interesting transition from the fairy tales to silence of the lambs this idea that mm-hmm. you know, there was a story where a woman was confronting the psyche of the male and and trying to etch out what lived in it and how tortured that makes men and then by the end sort of ends up becoming this figure who guides this man and keeps him and keeps him safe just because she was able to sort of get past his his damaged and and toxic ego and sort of become something of a light to him when he actually yes. loses his sight
1: exactly rochester becomes blind which is symbolically Interesting is like he never really saw in
2: the first place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you know, know, just just because it it's more way. like his true form, you know. We actually exactly. see now him. Exactly. He revealed. doesn't need his eyes. He sees clearly now. And that that makes <laughs> sense because then you can make a little comparison between him and 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 James Gum. You know, this, this the fact that he used transfiguration the night well. and and yeah, yeah. exactly. But those are this this form where you get revealed as your true self, but the true self is always a personal and understood element behind the character that ends up being warped you know so i mean I, I think it's great there's a little parallel between that and it's very much a sort of middle point between fairy tales and uh sounds of lamb so i think that's interesting that the transition there i also really liked the, the the recurring motif you bring up about the witches uh yeah. I, I love the idea because in historically witches are this tortured and misunderstood character. That they are a false mm-hmm. label used to to punish women in a male uh, governed society, so it's interesting that fairy tales i 'm not I'm not entirely sure i 'm not very read up in fairy tales and to be able to say oh that's where that comes from, but I think that 's interesting that historically that uh, we have done that to the witch character you know this the witch has become the symbol of the tortured female uh and it's interesting to place that idea onto Jamie. Who in himself is this tortured female who's forced to be a man? Is misunderstood. He wants to be a female, but can't because of the system. Yeah, it, it ends up forcing him to be something of this of a villain in the story, and it it it, it gives an interesting reflection on the roles of witches in. In fairy tales, where you can actually kind of wonder, what if we actually understood where they were coming from? Why are they so evil? You know, and that up- updating of trying to understand people better. Fairy tales give us this very base point by point story to understand like the bigger pictures and how these f- factor in. Where *Silences of the Lambs*, when you read it that way, kind of looks like a breaking apart and of of a fairy tale. To sort of yeah. show you the inner workings behind what causes each and every piece to function as it does, you know. And I think that's really interesting, yeah. especially when it centers around having to have a psychological discussion with the psychologist who eats people. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's great. And the idea that the cats also factor into it so firmly uh, and actually lead you. To understand the witch better, uh, you know, to try and find where the witch is. And I think that's interesting as a, as a motif because it not only does it cement the notion a little better, but it also, the fact that the cat leads Clarice through the room to get better details to find the yeah. witch it seems like as almost as if part of the witch is crying to be understood, you know, or crying to be found. And then you bring in that sacrificial nature of James Gum, then you understand that he actually might, given what you read through that relationship, he's actually crying to be stopped. You know, he actually... Yeah. And you get that also from just the idea that, like all killers... In these stories, they have a calling card that makes them easy to find out, and it's sort of the psychological cry to be stopped. Uh, but I, I like the idea that both the moth and the cat form that function where they, they represent, yeah. when he's not around, this this uh, the, this intention behind the character both leading the, the the hunt to find and stop him. It's just, it's fascinating. I figure it, it works yeah. on a lot of levels there.
1: Yeah, I mean, and just to continue quickly with, the, with regards to what we're talking about in terms of the witch. I mean, the witch herself, you know, fairy tales always deal in extremes, right? And mm. so the witch is always a representation of the older generation trying to still remain relevant in a way. And so the the new coming in basically is pushing out the old and there's always going to be that power struggle again, that we have in silence of the lambs and the witch, the idea that she wants to stay young by consuming the bodies of the, of, of the young, you know, if you look at Mm -hmm. uh, Rapunzel, even in the updated version that Disney put out, which I thought was a fantastic movie, absolutely, you know, she, mother, <laughs> mother tries to, you know, she she keeps Rapunzel locked in the tower so that she can actually stay young. Snow White is the other thing where she uh, sends, uh she wants to eat, I think it was oh, Snow White's the, liver, lungs, and heart. Yeah, I, I know to, from
2: the Disney cartoon, it's the heart. I'm sure there's more to it in the actual fucking story. Yeah, <laughs> that,
1: it, it's pretty intense when it comes to those things. And it's all a quest to consume the young one's beauty. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, when you look at what Buffalo Bill is doing, when he actually cuts up Catherine Martin's shirt and he looks and he goes, oh... And he's really just rubbing her back. He's looking at the skin. And it's a skin that he doesn't have. It's something that he wants Mm -hmm. so desperately. And you'll also have, when they have the close-up of his mouth, when he's actually putting on the lipstick, would you fuck me? I would fuck me. (laughs) The idea that he basically is wanting to become attractive. There is a, a, I would say, I'll call it youth for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily just becoming a woman, but it's also... Becoming something of of a of a, a a different version of youth that he's never had. Uh, something just popped in my head, and I want your opinion on this. Mm. Witches also engage in incantations. Would you th- say that when he is talking to Catherine Martin and she disobeys, when he says? It puts the lotion, the lotion on its skin. On its and, body, uh, on its skin, and, or else or it, gets it gets the, the hose again. again. That's his spell. He's repeating magic spell. that as a refrain as well. Do you think that would be some form That's of incantation? That's so good. From a yeah, witch? absolutely. It's so to see it clever. That, right? Yeah,
2: definitely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, I don't know, man. I-, I could go on for another hour, but I don't. Uh, I don't think that I. uh I- I'll always have something more to say about Silence of the Land, Yeah, like the it's, it's that kind of film. It's stuff.
2: so it's so open ended in its imagery as well, and, uh, and its characters. It, when when you're working with fairy tales, the fucking conversation always goes on forever, anyway. So, oh, yeah.
1: well, I mean that we're going to be talking about Drive, and so a lot of this is going to come back up. Uh. <laughs> but I- I'm really looking forward to that because Drive is is another one. I'm, I'm really happy I showed this to my students.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: I had a fun time watching them watch it. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I know that there are a few, uh, that didn't sleep that night <laughs> and I took great comfort in that. And at the same time, I was like, you can't do that, Jason. That, then that gives grounds for Leslie to get you to watch horror movies. Because if kids yeah, can watch yeah. this,
2: you can you des- watch other yeah, shit. You deserve <laughs> to be tortured too. <laughs>
1: uh, so I don't know if I'll give her the pleasure anytime soon, but yeah, no, Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I'm not even going to recommend this. If you haven't watched it yet.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a deserving classic. You know, you absolutely <laughs> come on. <laughs>
1: so I don't know yep that's all I have to say about it man shall we close this out sir let's do it Uh, hey thank you guys for for patiently waiting for our our latest episode Mm. it's taken us a while to get back on track Uh, I had a semester I'm still working on a lot of stuff uh, planning courses and and, and, and grading papers and all that stuff life got in the way a little bit this is a a pretty jam-packed semester for me. The Kids are going through their little changes, so family matters and whatnot, and I wanted to have a little bit more of a relaxing time, so I have to I have to say to Lee, thank you for your patience, too, because I'm the so one that's me. constantly <laughs> holding us back. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this. This is a fun one to talk about. Uh, there's so much more to say, but at the same time, I think we did a, a good round. I'm really glad to have talked about Silence of the Lambs. I love this movie so fucking much. Yeah,
2: and I feel like we didn't fucking totally ruin it or destroy it so uh, that's the best we can hope for
1: <laughs> yeah definitely yeah uh, so we're we're inviting you guys to comment uh you know send us yeah. send us your feedback on the episode uh thanks for waiting we're going to be trying other things too uh lee and i had wanted to start uh, having a little bit more conversations we realized yeah. that bringing on people for our main show was a little bit more difficult uh because of the the analysis that we do and stuff like that and this is not us like just like, it's a
2: different it's a difficult format to ask of our friends you know exactly <laughs> so uh
1: we're bringing back uh you know atlantic sc chat or next or whatever the fuck yeah. we used to call it and we're going to be sitting down with people and just having long-form conversations about movies so look forward to that we've, we've already taped a couple we're keeping them in the bank and we're really looking forward to sharing these episodes with you guys because we had a fuck ton of fun absolutely and we have we're, we're intent on having a lot more fun uh doing this so it's going to be uh, a, a fun thing to look forward to i'll stop saying fun now <laughs> <laughs> that's no fun. sounds like fun all right uh so um yeah we we haven't been on twitter much lately so uh, thank you for uh respecting that Uh, uh speaking of toxic environments uh social media has been one of those things that i've slowly like i said uh Mike Denniston has been slowly telling me to, to to tune out, and that's what I've been doing, and I've been feeling yeah. greater as a result. And so thank you for that. But do give the show a follow. Uh, go check out our Facebook page. Check out our Instagram. Uh, check out uh, Atlantic SC on Twitter. Uh, Lee's been operating that because it's his job now, and that's the way that's going to be, no matter how much he doesn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> So, a- anything to add, Mr. Lee Brady, sir? Yeah,
2: no. You can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lee Paul Brady, where I I don't know. I'm just talking about screenwriting these days mostly. When I'm not talking about the show, uh, I'm on Instagram as well under Lee Paul Brady. You can follow me there and see my cats. That's pretty much all you're getting from me these <laughs> days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're getting pop jason from me Yeah, uh, yeah exactly
2: <laughs> yes where can they find you jason on
1: instagram you can call me uh, checking out at jason b michael jason b michael is my, my my handle on instagram i've been posting pictures of my my pop self enjoying life <laughs> uh, in different places yeah so that's it uh, that's it for us this week thank you for tuning in and uh see you soon <laughs> <laughs>